How many remember the days before cell phones? Remember those days? Now, you don't have to raise your hands for this one, okay? But how many ever experienced a long-distance relationship in the days before cell phones? It, it might be with the person you're sitting with. That's fine. Uh, if not, don't raise your hand. But, um, you know, I don't know if you remember those days, but those were expensive days. Those were days, I mean, you would dread at the end of the month to get your phone bill, right? Because sometimes you get a phone bill after a month, maybe two months, and you realize, man, I could have bought a plane ticket and gone to be with this person for a week rather than talking on the phone that time. Now, for the sake of the young people, uh, let me explain what long distance is. <laughs> a long distance charge on your bill was back in those days when the phone company would extort a large amount of money for you, uh, from you for having dared to make a phone call outside of your immediate area code uh, on what we called a landline, which, of course, we still have today, but they are quickly disappearing. And so what did we do, for those of us who didn't have a lot of money back in those days, what did we do instead of making those phone calls? We wrote letters. Remember those things? We used to write letters, lots and lots of letters. Now, I don't know if this is always the case, but usually the guy would manage to write about once a week. If he was really good, probably get a page or two in there. Usually the ladies were a little better at that. They would write two, maybe three times sometimes, and I don't know how they do it, but, you know, one day goes by and you still get seven pages, which is wonderful uh, when you're looking forward to getting that letter, but they seem so much more expressive. Some of us got really creative and uh, once in a while would put together a cassette tape. You ever do that? You just kind of, oh, yeah, a lot more, okay, I thought we were original, but you just kind of, you know, put it onto the cassette tape and send it and the person could hear your voice rather than just reading your letter. But the important thing uh, was the content in those letters. And did you ever notice that the longer you were away from each other, the sappier your letters got, kind of wishy-washy, and some of you are probably embarrassed to, to bring those uh, back out of the box there. But uh, I can remember you'd, you'd race home, and you're just hoping that there was a letter in your mailbox. Back in those days when it actually came to your door, I don't remember that. The letters would come to your door, and you'd, you'd, you'd get home and, and hope there was a letter there. If you didn't have a letter, then you'd probably just kind of go back into your room and take out a letter that, you know, was recent, a letter or two, and read over it again. And then you'd take all of your letters, and you would store them in a box. And you would hide that box away from the eyes of your prying parents. You know, your mother or a father, you'd keep those safely in a box, which reminds me, actually... I have to get a box for Alex. Bye, Alex. A box. Okay. Because you didn't want your parents reading those letters. So love letters are actually, you know, they're as old as love itself. And they're very, very important for those people who are in love. Now, the scripture I'm going to read this morning in just a few moments is actually a love letter from a man to the law of God. Sounds like a strange thing. He actually is in love with the law of God. Now, to understand exactly what that means, let me try to explain it this way. Uh, Bill Belichick is a coach of uh, my favorite NFL team. It's actually been my favorite team for some 35 years, long before they became famous like they are today, coach of the uh, New England Patriots. Uh, all of us from this end of the world know who the Patriots probably are. And uh, Bill got his love for the game from his father. His father actually coached the U.S. Naval Academy team for a number of years. And so Bill grew up with football. And Bill was a man who loved football, and he was a man who was able to maximize the efficiency of his team within the rules 
of the football game, which he loved, at least, at least most of the time. There are some New England Patriot haters, you know, who get all bogged down in Spygate and, and uh, Deflategate, uh, that kind of stuff, for those of you who know football. Uh, but yet, even with the suspensions they got, with the loss of draft choices, uh, Coach Bilicek was still able to win 14 uh, uh, American Football Conference titles uh, in his division over the 16 years. They actually went to the Super Bowl. I can see some of your eyes kind of glazing over, like, who cares? Okay, but if you're a Christian, you care, okay? This is the New England Patriots I'm talking about, okay? So, uh, and they actually appeared in the Super Bowl seven times, winning five of those Super Bowls. But the point I want to make is that Bill is an example of someone who has a thorough understanding of the laws of football. And because he has that understanding, he has had a lot of victories, a lot of fame, and a lot of fortune. And I want to ask us this morning, what if we could understand the laws of God as well as Coach Belichick understands the laws of football? What if we could make the most out of the Word of God, not in a manipulating way, but in an understanding and respondent way, responsive way that God intends that actually worked to our advantage, actually helped us to get ahead? You see, I really believe that's what God wants for us. And the passage I want to read this morning is Psalm 119. We're going to read it responsibly. There's only, I think, 176 verses. No, I'm just kidding. We're going to just read four, look at four verses in Psalm 119, and these are the words that King David writes. He writes, Oh, how I love your law. I meditated on it all day long. Your commands are always with me, and they make me wiser than my enemies. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. Four simple verses in which David mentions three distinct advantages for life that are available for every person who knows God or at least knows or loves his word. The first thing David says is this, your commands are always with me and they make me wiser than my enemies. Now the word command in the Hebrew language is very interesting because in this particular case, it actually speaks of what you might call an act of power. Now, when we look at the commands of God, which Scripture says of itself, that the commands of God are not burdensome, right? They are not grievous. The commands of God are not heavy. The word command speaks of an act of power, not a power that is over, uh, lording over you as if here's the command and I've just got no choice and I'm just, you know, I'm just, uh, you know, weighed down under this legalism of God. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a power that is actually released through his word that is offered to you. And David says, one of the ways this power of God from his commands is manifested in my life is that he gives me power, he gives me more wisdom than those who oppose me. In other words, as Scripture says in the New Testament, we are not ignorant of the enemy's schemes, of the enemy's devices. The Word of God actually gives me an advantage over the enemy, as we'll see in a moment. He says, it makes me wiser than those who oppose me. What is wisdom? I think most of us know that wisdom is different from knowledge. Knowledge is not a bad thing, of course, but knowledge is the accumulation of information. Wisdom, on the other hand, is the actual application of that information in a way that moves you forward in everything that you were intended to know and to be. You might say that 9 plus 9 would be knowledge, but 9 times 9 would be wisdom. 
In other words, wisdom has this exponential factor to it that knowledge doesn't have. Knowledge comes with more information, but wisdom has a way of actually not just increasing with more knowledge. Wisdom has a way, in a, in a multiplication type way, of bringing increase to your life. So knowledge is not a bad thing, but knowledge is the accumulation of information. Wisdom actually brings that increase. Where does wisdom come from? Well, of course, knowledge we know can come from books. It can come from conversations with people. And again, it's not a bad thing. But wisdom comes from a person. And the Bible says, for example, in Proverbs chapter 8, which is a chapter of wisdom written from a person called wisdom, which we know is the Lord. And it says this, listen, everyone, I'm calling out to you. This is wisdom speaking. I'm shouting to all people, you who are uneducated, you just have some information, seek wisdom. You who are foolish, get understanding. Listen, because I have important things to say, and what I tell you is right. Now, we can just read that scripture and say, oh, that's an interesting scripture, but you're missing the point. The Lord is saying, what I just read, get hold of this. Don't just know about wisdom. Oh, wisdom would be a good thing. Oh, wisdom sounds good. No, no. Get it. Move from just knowledge to actually experiencing and walking in wisdom. He says the wisdom is found in God's love letter to us in what we call the Bible. That's where real wisdom is found. It's found at the source. You can read Proverbs 8 for yourself, but it concludes with these words, verse 32, one word. He says, now my children, listen to me. Because those who follow my ways are happy. Listen to my teaching, and you will be wise. Do not ignore it. Most people do. Happy are those who listen to me, watching at my door every day, waiting at my open doorway. Those who what? Not just who know about me. Those who find me find life, and the Lord will be pleased with them. Read the rest with me. Those who do not find me hurt themselves. This is not inconsequential to just blow off wisdom or treat it as optional. You need to understand, if you don't seek wisdom, you will hurt yourself, as we see in a moment. And those who hate me, who have no time for me, you actually love death because that's where you're heading. Not just physical death, not just spiritual death, but there is this death and decay that just kind of characterizes your life. Just little ways of things that erode away at you and at your life because you don't walk in wisdom. Now, back to Psalm 119. And by the way, Psalm 119 tradition tells us it was actually written by King David to teach his son Solomon the Hebrew alphabet. But it wasn't just the alphabet of, you know, learning to read letters. The way it was done creatively, reading through the Psalm 119 Psalm in its original language, it was actually used to teach Solomon the alphabet, or you might say the proper order of spiritual life. And so there's a double purpose for it here. David says, your commands are always with me, and they make me wiser than my enemies. David gained more wisdom than those who opposed him, and second, David gained more insight than those who had taught him. Listen to this. He says, I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. David wasn't being arrogant. He wasn't being brash, this young upstart. No, David was saying, Lord, I have more insight than those who teach me. Why? Not to criticize them, but you see, they're 
reading the law. They're studying the words. They're memorizing things. They can debate. They can compare scriptures. But I'm going deeper than that. I want to know the author of these words. And I've developed a love for this word because I'm actually breaking the word down. I'm taking time to meditate on it. I'm breaking it down, and I'm seeing things they don't see. To me, it's not just information. It's not just for debate. It's not just saying, okay, I can compartmentalize because, okay, I understand that about God. It's whether or not what I understand is being appropriated to my life, and because that's my heart's desire, because of my hunger for your word, because I know your word is full of life, I want to get all the life out of it as I can. Because of that, I have more insight than actually my teachers do. Uh, some of you know Smith Wigglesworth, a man who walked in just incredible power in the Holy Spirit, but a man who loved the word of God. Smith Wigglesworth was a man, and he's not saying it was bad, but he didn't read the newspaper, the daily newspaper. That was a big thing back in those days. You always bought the newspaper, probably 50 pages. You sit down after work. You didn't have TV stuff back in the early days. You sit down. You'd read through the entire paper, take a couple of hours. He said, I don't have time for that. I don't even read a lot of books. He said, there's one book that I read. I read it inside and out, and I love it. It's the Word of God. What amazed people was that he would talk to scholars. People would ask him questions and sometimes even try to trip him up, those who were arrogant. And not only did he have an answer for them, he understood the deeper meaning of things they didn't understand or things that they did understand through other means, through all of their studies. He understood because he was taught by the Holy Spirit because he loved the Word of God. And it doesn't mean that we can't read books or shouldn't read books or shouldn't glean from others, but it means that if that's all you do, you will always live on the surface. At best, you'll be able to quote other people. You'll have some nice ideas when the topic comes up. You can quote somebody else whether you give them credit or not. You can sound really intelligent, but you don't have insight. Insight for living that the Holy Spirit brings to us. He says, I have more insight than my teachers because why? I meditate on your statutes. Insight is knowing why things work the way they work. And again, this insight for living comes from the Lord. Books are not bad, but friends, at best, they express human opinions. And how many understand that human opinions differ? Theological positions differ. Why? Because whether we admit it or not, a lot of the things that we read and write are based upon subjective human experience. Sometimes we're right, sometimes we're wrong. It's not bad to have a cross-section of those things, but that is not where insight comes from. In fact, did a little word study on this. Our English word insight comes to us from a Scandinavian word that simply means this, inner sight. Isn't that profound? Insight means inner sight. Just think what you would have missed if you had to stay at home this morning. Insight means inner sight. But here's really what it means. The idea of inner sight is an understanding that's not just cerebral. It's an understanding that originates at the level of your spirit. It's down in here. And David says that I have an insight that is greater than my teachers because I meditate on God's statutes. Now, here's a little tidbit you might be interested in as well. This idea of command in the Hebrew language refers to the power that God provides when his word is applied, that power for living. Isn't that what Hebrew says? That the word of God is what? It's full of living power. So there's a dynamite. So please understand that when David loves the commands and when we're called to love the commands of God, he's not saying that you're some kind of, you know, you're just looking to be ordered around. No, he, he says, I understand that God's words contain life. Remember the old saying that your wish is my command? 
It doesn't mean that you're some slave that has no option. You just have such admiration for the person that you serve, their skill set, their intelligence, the fact they've proven themselves so much in different fields that when they say something like, man, yeah, I'm going to do that because I trust you. I just know. You don't have to ask me twice. You just wish it, I will do it. There's that dedication. And in the same way, David said, I understand God's commands are full of power that actually make me wiser than my enemies. That's what command means. But statutes speak to the warnings that God gives us to keep us from being ensnared. So when David says that I meditate on your statutes, he's not talking about threats from God. He's talking about insights where God says, this is why it works best this way. There's a whole lot of things I escaped as a teenager. I mean, I grew up with the friends in sports. I grew up with the the parties. I grew up with the drugs, all that kind of stuff around me. I'm not saying I was attracted to it. I just loved my friends. I would hang with my friends, and I just, you know, wanted to be with my friends in the sense of even at the young age, just having a burden for them and wanted to be a witness. Didn't have an attraction to that kind of stuff. But I did find that growing up, as I walked with the Lord, that there was just this um, understanding of certain things that were good or bad. Now, don't get me wrong. I didn't go to the parties, and, you know, there's places I avoided. But there was lots of temptations or opportunities out there. But I can remember as a young man, both or a teenager rather, both with, with parents who, who lived good lives, weren't necessarily um, you know, disciples of Christ for a lot of my years, good church-going people, but they still lived pretty good lives. And I just kind of had this God-given, I think, common sense that they kind of lived a little longer than me and they kind of made some mistakes they didn't want me to make. And I kind of thought, you know what? It's probably not a bad idea to listen to them. Because if such and such didn't work for them, they're just telling me for my own good. You know, I don't know. It's kind of like when you're, uh, I shouldn't share this example, but most folks are gone, so you're not going to tell anybody. You remember, like, as a kid, if you ever get tempted to smoke or, you ever, you know, kids kind of pressure you to smoke? I can remember you're si- we were sitting around in the woods, you know, and, and if one guy brings up this, are the kids all gone? Daniel, forget everything I said, okay? After this, when you go home, just forget the sermon. But I can remember, you sit around this circle, and one guy just sneaks out this cigarette. You know, hopefully it's tobacco, but he just sneaks out this cigarette. And he lights it. Takes his big, you know, what do they call it? Puff, I think it's a different word, but whatever it was. Take drag, that's what I'm looking for. Takes a big drag off his cigarette and starts coughing. <coughs> and he's half dying. And as he's there dying holding the cigarette, there's a guy beside him saying, don't hog it, man, pass it on. You ever have that happen? You know, so I just, you know, part of it was I played sports, didn't want to, you know, didn't want to affect my health. But I can remember parents saying, you know what, if you smoke, you do this, whatever, this is probably what's going to happen. I'm thinking, okay, that makes sense, not going to do it. And that's all David is saying. That's a long way of explaining the word statutes. David is saying, I love your statutes. I just meditate on your statutes. Why? Because your statutes are warnings. They're not saying I can't do something. It's a wisdom that comes in your word that says, this is why life works this way. I've come to give you life in all of its fullness. So if you'll just listen to my warnings and have the sense to say, okay, God, I don't understand it all, but I trust your heart for me, so I'm not going to do what you say not to do. I'm going to do what you tell me to do. I realize I am going to stay free from a lot of stuff and I'm going to be spared a lot of scars. Okay, we're going to 
probably edit that last five minutes of the message in case you go online or you want to post something on Facebook. But uh, David meditated on God's statutes. What does that mean? It means that he mulled over God's word over and over and over again until he fully understood it in a way that it became inextricably woven into his natural process. And that's why it's so important that we learn to meditate on the Word of God because you will find yourself in situations, you'll find yourself in a store ready to buy something, make a financial commitment, you'll find yourself in a relationship, you'll find yourself able to say something, whatever. If the Word of God is in you, He can bring His Word to the surface in your mind and He can show you what is best to do or not to do and in doing so, He can keep you free. David said that God made him wiser than his enemies and more insightful than his teachers. Then he said this, I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. You see, your maturity in the Lord has nothing to do with how long it's been since you accepted Christ into your heart. It should, but it doesn't. It doesn't have anything to do with how long you've been sitting in the church. It doesn't matter how long your church membership has been. Your maturity in the Lord is measured by one simple thing. How long does it take you to obey what God says to you? That is the level of your maturity. You can have a child living at home for 50 years. doesn't matter how, you know, how much they say, hey, I'm old enough, or you, you get this line sometimes, hey, I'm 14, or hey, I'm 16. The parent doesn't look at the biological time frame that you've been on this planet. The, the parent looks at how well do you respond to instruction? Can I trust you with the keys? Can I trust that you will do what you should do, what I tell you to do? That's where the maturity factor, that's where the freedom factor comes if you are maturing as a child, if you're maturing as a child of God. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. Insight has to do with knowing why things work the way they do. Understanding is knowing how things work the way that we do. We said last week, in the kingdom of God, it's not about what you know. It's about what you understand. It's about what you're actually walking in, what you're actually walking out in your faith in the Lord. It's not about the information that you can regurgitate. Understanding comes from doing. I mean, how many of us understand this? You can explain something to a person a thousand times until they're blue in the face. And sometimes you've got to do that for me. I was never big on comprehension. I've got to go over things over and over. When I get it, I get it. But if you let the person actually do what you're showing them, then it clicks, doesn't it? You put your hands to it, and then you say, okay, now I understand. Now, Jesus has something to say about that in John 14. He said, those who know my commands and what? Obey them are the ones who love me. I will love them, and I will show myself to them. In other words, it's the people who take it from here actually begin to put it into action who begin to experience a living faith who begin to see the Lord show up and reveal that his word works and that he's there to meet his word. Now, you can certainly gain a lot of understanding, again, by things you read or by things you watch on YouTube. On a couple of different occasions, I've come home and I've seen my wife have appliances dismantled with an iPad on the counter tuned in to YouTube. And she literally took apart our dishwasher and fixed it. Because the dishes were getting dirty and she got tired of asking me because I don't want to pretend they didn't know what I was doing. never thought of YouTube. Didn't want to pay for a repairman. I just kind of wiped the glasses off when they got out so she wouldn't see them after a while. But she got tired of that. And then the clothes washer went. And sure enough, she went on YouTube. Might have burnt the house down, but she went on YouTube. 
found the answer for that and just doesn't wait around for me anymore. So those are wonderful resources. But in order for us to understand how life is meant to work, you need to learn from the one who designed it. And the way that you understand how things work so you can actually make them work for you is you actually do what God shows you to do. Now, that might sound simple, but I really believe that is the one place where most of us get caught up or bogged down. We may not do a lot of the don'ts, but neither do we do a lot of the do's. In our culture today, in our Christian culture, I hope I'm not exaggerating, but I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that for most professing Christians, obedience to God is optional. And because of that, people don't grow. In fact, I don't mean to sound cynical, but in over 35 years of pastoral ministry, I think I've discovered one thing about the average professing believer. It is this. You are going to do what you want to do. Doesn't that sound <laughs> encouraging? I really have found this. And in fact, I think I shared this with you a couple of years ago. A senior pastor who had retired, he said, Paul, a good friend, actually was a superintendent, he said, Paul, I have found in all my life of ministry that most Christians don't change. And that was really discouraging for me for a moment. But I understood what he meant. Because for many of us in our Western culture, and we'll see why in just a moment, for many of us, we have adopted a form of godliness. That doesn't mean you're not going to heaven when you die. But as far as actually advancing in life, advancing in the kingdom, advancing in ministry, this flourishing of spiritual fruitfulness, there's a stagnation because we've embraced a lifestyle. A lifestyle that keeps us from actually the person that we're supposed to know and love and his word that's supposed to actually shape our lives and change us. And so we live as good people. We try to do the things that we know we're supposed to do, but there's not this sensitivity to the regular prodding or the regular enlightening of the Word of God that makes us disciples who are actually growing from strength to strength, from glory to glory. Now, again, it, does, it doesn't sound like a nice thing to say, but I've found that it doesn't matter if Jesus said it. It doesn't matter what the preacher says. For a lot of people in the body of Christ, they will do what God says if and when they feel like doing it. You're awfully quiet, but would some of you agree? And friends, I'll confess, I can be that way sometimes too. But here's the key. If you want to break free from that quagmire that keeps bogging you down, then you have to begin doing the one thing David did. He said, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. You see, the reason why we don't change a lot is not necessarily because, and maybe we do from God's perspective, but I don't think it's always necessarily because we have this defiant, disobedient heart. It's just that we don't give occasion for the Word of God to shine into our heart. And so our heart that is wicked and deceitful more than anything, keeps us feeling that we're okay because here's the measure the heart uses. Whereas when we allow the Word of God to come into our heart that is able to divide bone from marrow, that is able to discern even the thoughts and intents of my heart, I read the Word and all of a sudden, whoa, 
wow, Lord, yeah, I need to address that. Or, wow, Lord, that is an exciting opportunity. I want that. Or, wow, whatever. We don't give that opportunity, and so we stay dull. We stay, you know, in a place of unbelief and contentment, and we don't grow. David says, I'm growing because I meditate on your word all day long. Now, as we know, meditate is not some kind of Eastern mysticism where you just, you know, hum this, you know, monotonous tune while you empty your brain. That's not what it means. Meditate to us comes from the Latin word meditari, which literally means to, to measure. And when you measure something, what you're doing is carefully considering its dimensions. You measure something, you look at its size, its content, its quality. Why? So that you know exactly how to use this thing. You've measured it. You know how to maximize its use. And see, David loved the Word of God because he understood that God's Word is not rules. We always say this, don't we? God's Word is not a book of rules. It's a book of truths, a book of truths that make life work. And so in the same way, David understood that God's Word is not a list of rules, but it's a ruler by which life can be measured, life can be understood, and life can be advanced. That's why as believers, and I've heard these testimonies many, many times, they're wonderful, where a believer finds himself in a situation maybe where it seems like some wrong has been done to them, or maybe there's this issue at work, or maybe it's a Christian employer who, who's trying to deal with the staff person or some difficult situation. So many times when that person, rather than just dealing with the natural mind, dealing in the flesh, dealing with what seems to be obvious, when that person will take time in the presence of the Lord, will take time in the Word of God, the Lord will give them a wisdom as to how they're to move or if they're to move or when to move or what they're to do. And so oftentimes as they do it God's way, what happens, the word of God and its power is released in that situation behind closed doors in ways that you can't fabricate and something begins to come out in a different way that you never expected. Why? Because you have obeyed the word that you've gotten into. The entrance of the word has brought some light and life into what seemed like an impossible situation. We have a Bible plan that we encourage believers to read through. You can go online and find it. Give us a call or just find your own. There's so many Bible apps out there, and it will take you through the Word of God in, in, the, in the entire Word of God in only one year. And you know what? It only takes the average person about 10 minutes of reading, three or four chapters a day, 10 minutes, and you can read through the entire Word of God. Now, having said that, I want us to understand that God's Word will only shape your life. It will only come alive to you and make a difference in your life when you begin to stop and think about what you have read. That's the key. If you're reading through the Bible in one year and that's your target, I congratulate you. That's wonderful. But if you're reading through it 10 minutes a day, I'll tell you this. You're going to be able to check at the end of the year, I read through the Bible, but that's all you did. You just read through the Bible. Now, congratulations, a lot of Christians don't get through a, a book of the Bible in a whole year. Every believer who names the name of Jesus, you ought to get through the Bible at least once a year. It's only 10 minutes. But if you're going to grow, I'd encourage you to take an extra five minutes, an extra 10 minutes, to, to meditate on something that you have read, to make sure you're coming away with a thought that you can kind of store in your back of your mind that the Holy Spirit can bring up through the day that you can think about. Now, I'm no farmer, but I understand for a cow, it spends all day eating grass, and it's got like four different stomachs. And then old Betsy, after she spent all day out there grazing, she goes into the barn, and whenever she's ready, she just brings up some grass from one of those stomachs, and that's what's in the cud. 
She just chews it and chews it, sends it back down for a while, a little later on, brings it up again to another compartment, chews it and chews What is she doing? Through that chewing process, that rumination process it's called, she's actually maximizing the extracting of every little bit of nutrient that's in that grass that she has eaten. And that's what the Lord is saying. Read my word, take some time to think on, meditate, underline a scripture, put it in your mind in such a way that through the course of the day, the Holy Spirit can bring it back to remembrance. And you chew on it some more, you think about it some more, you think, wow, I never thought of this, or insight. Or, how many have found this? Something you read in the morning, or maybe a day or two before, the Holy Spirit actually brings to your mind in a given situation in real life. What a coincidence. And you're able again to extract all the nutrients that actually cause you to grow. In the very first Psalm, David leads off with these words. He says, oh, the joys of those who delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it all day and night. They prosper in all they do. They prosper in all they do. That word prosper, we know what it means. It means to increase, to make progress, to advance forward. How many of us here this morning will say, Pastor, there's some areas of my life that I wouldn't mind making some more progress, right? I think most of us would. Or, or I wouldn't mind making some more advancement in God's mission for my life. I'd love to see that move forward. Well, David says that's how you do it. But the key is meditation. The key is reflection. The word reflect, very simple, it just means to bend back. It's kind of like a mirror. Why does a piece of glass reflect? Because though you don't see it, there's a bend in it. And it's almost like the image I get is as we walk through life, racing through life, racing through the week, the Lord is saying, listen, if you want to grow, if you want some fruitfulness, if you want to contribute something through that week, if you want to actually live from rest rather than just working toward rest and really never accomplishing anything, in the course of your day, you've got to stop sometimes and bend backwards and take some time to look at what I want to show you, reflect on what I'm speaking to you, that is what will give meat to your day that will bring a sense of purpose. You see, I really believe that the curse of sin is really the fact that we have been hardwired in our human nature to be self-destructive. That's our natural bent. If we are left to ourselves, we make decisions every day that hurt ourselves. It may not be immediate. It may be over the long haul. But we hurt ourselves physically, we hurt ourselves spiritually, we hurt ourselves financially, we hurt ourselves relationally because we had just have this self-destructive nature. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't fill our lives with a lot of stuff and we don't have a lot of fun, but at the end of the day, it's not stuff that actually has substance. It doesn't mean you can't enjoy life to the full by all means, but we make a lot of decisions and a lot of commitments that actually have a way of eroding in us or they have a way of distracting us from what even are greater things that God has for us. And so the gospel is about the Lord coming along and offering us a counterintuitive insight that bypasses that self-destructive tendencies so that our life can flourish. How many understand God wants your relationships to flourish? He wants your finances to flourish. He wants every area of your life. He wants your children to flourish. That's what God intends for us. Now, for those who know a little bit of church history, you probably remember about Back in about the 5th century, the Roman church, the really only Christian church, kind of the representative at that time in that era of human history, it actually banned the reading of God's word from the general public because it believed that God's word was too holy, too sacred, it couldn't be understood by common people. 
It couldn't be read by them. It was kind of a dangerous thing. And so what they did was they translated the scriptures into Latin. And the average person wasn't allowed to learn Latin. Only the priest could learn Latin. Only the priest could read the scriptures and teach from Latin because they believed that the, that the, that the priest, of course, was the one who could tell the people what they needed to know. And, of course, structurally, it was a way of keeping, uh, keeping power over the people. Well, if you study history, what was the consequence in society of the scriptures being taken out of the hands of the people? Europe was plunged in what was called the Dark Ages. And for a thousand years, we had this era in human history called the Medieval Times, where there basically was no development, there were no inventions to speak of, it was a time of total decline and darkness. Culturally, spiritually, economically, everything, it just flatlined, and it was a time of superstition, it was a time of suffering, a time of religious torture, it was a very difficult time in which to live. It wasn't until the Protestant Reformation when scriptures were put back into the hands of the people that there came a spiritual revival. And with that spiritual revival, there came all these new technologies, all these new inventions. In fact, with the revival, spiritual revival, there was just life signs everywhere. What was that era called, remember? The Renaissance, which means the new birth, Renaissance, to be born again. Isn't that interesting? That culture would recognize there has been a birth and it doesn't mean there weren't some secular things or carnal things that came in the process, but generally all of society came alive again. Why? Because the Word of God was placed back into their hands, the Word that is full of living power. People came to know Christ. People came alive again in the Spirit, and with that came creativity and hope and optimism and joy and all the things the kingdom of God brings in His light and prosperity and it was transformation. But you know, sadly... What the misguided church did back in the dark ages, I believe materialism is doing today. We have the life-changing, life-elevating Word of God in every home. And yet in most homes today, all it does is sits on the shelf and it collects dust. Because we as believers today, we are so consumed with possessions. And more than that, we are so consumed with pleasure. Isn't that exactly what the Apostle Paul said to Timothy? In the last days, people will be lovers of pleasure. We will live on the sensory level. Is that not true of our culture today? We will live on the sensory level, not deep down, not insight, not deep knowledge, not strength and power that comes to live right, but we'll just be attracted to the things that tingle, novel things, new things that otherwise just kind of Help us deal with the whole hum and monotony and boredom of life. People will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And because we have so many things, so many pleasures, we allow ourselves to believe we don't really need God. Now, we never say that, oh, we need God. You've got to take care of the heaven and hell thing. But as far as here, everything's good, everything's okay. I don't have time for you. I don't really depend on you. And out of that, Paul says, because he's speaking to the church, out of that, people become boastful and proud. Look at me. Look at me. Look what I have, what I don't need. Life is good. <gasps> yeah, it's short too. And the Lord reminds us what life is really about. The Word reminds us. 
and we can live life to the full. But part of that fullness comes from the Lord cutting away, pruning in our life things that really don't matter, giving ourselves to what does. And it's not all in church context, obviously, by any means, but it's spirit-led. Empty religion took the Bible out of people's hands centuries ago, and empty materialism takes the Bible out of hands today. And you know what? The consequence is the same. A thousand years, 1,500 years ago, what happened? People just made stupid, stupid decisions based on silly superstitions. They made all these decisions that just made life, turned it upside down, made life miserable. And friends, today I see it over and over again, the same thing. Christians today are suffering the unnecessary consequences of foolish decisions they make every single day because they ignore the wisdom and the insight that God's Word could give them that would keep them free and help them to prosper. If you have the Word of God in you, if you love the Word of God, you'll just discover that as you walk through life and culture that wants to keep you trapped, that wants to shut you down, that wants to break up relationship, that wants to rob your kids from you, whatever the case may be, the Holy Spirit, He'll just walk with you and He'll say, no, don't do that. No, this is good. Yeah, do that. No, don't buy that. You don't need that thing. You don't need that financial commitment. No, you don't need that financial. You don't need that. No, here, put it into this. You see, just every day, just as we just navigate through life, he just gives us a wisdom for living that keeps us free. And you can say, Lord, thank you for the wisdom to do that, to not do that. Lord, thank you that I didn't open my mouth there. Thank you that I didn't tell my wife this. It wouldn't have been the smartest thing. Thank you, Lord. Whatever it might be, he brings a freedom and a prosperity. But because of wrong decisions that are made today, because of the ignorance and the, the, the neglect of God's word, marriages are deteriorating, finances are a mess, children are walking away from the Lord because we live in a day of which Daniel said people will be running to and fro and knowledge will increase at a feverish pace. But in the chapter before, Daniel says this, but those who know their God, those who know their God, in that very same day, they will be strong. Now the translation says they will stand firm and they will take action. Oh, how I love your law. Will you read it with me? Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. Saints, God's word works. It's just that simple. God's word works. John D. Rockefeller Sr. was a man, I believe, whose life proves this point. I want to close with his illustration. It was at a very young age that John realized the place that gas and oil was going to have in the Western economy, and so he got into that business until eventually he began to buy up some of the uh, refineries or just however you do that along the way to the point when he was older that he actually controlled and owned over 90% of all the oil and gasoline that was being produced in the United States. And of course, that gave him great influence in the areas of transportation, textiles, all that thing, all those things that made him the richest man in the world in his day, and it also made him stronger, more powerful, rather, than even the president himself. Now, one of the things a lot of people don't know is that the reason for Rockefeller's great success and the reason for his many charitable works is that John grew up in a poor home in Cleveland, Ohio, in a home that was abandoned by his father. He had many siblings, but his mother raised him and his siblings to be devoted followers of Jesus Christ. She didn't have the money to send her kids to school. 
So John learned to read, and he learned wisdom for life simply being a student of the Word of God. John read the Word. He meditated on the Word of God. He memorized scriptures every single day of his life. John also attended church twice a week. As an adult and a wealthy man, he served as a trustee, but also as a wealthy man, he was also the church custodian. He rested on Sundays. He taught Sunday school. And John made it his goal, with the gifts God had given him in finance, John made it his goal to make as much money as he possibly could so that he could give it all away. Now, what did John do with his money? He gave his money to faith-based organizations. John loved the Lord, and John wanted to see the kingdom of God advance in his culture. He gave money to churches, food banks, private hospitals, private universities, mission organizations, orphanages, all such organizations. By the time of his death, John gave away over $500 million. Now, you might be thinking, that's not a whole lot of money. We're talking the currency of the late 1800s, early 1900s. In today's currency, John gave, gave away about $20 billion. $20 billion over his life. And he maintained this. He said, the sole source of my success is meditating on the principle of God's word and applying them to my life. From God's word, he gained wisdom and insight and understanding, and God saw his heart, knew he could trust him, and he catapulted him to the top. Now, I'm not talking this morning about a get-rich a get scheme. I'm going to ask the musicians to join me as we close this morning. That's not what it's about, but I am telling you those Christians, we often squander the greatest wealth that we have available to us in the pursuit of transient wealth. And oftentimes in our pursuit of transient wealth, it leads from one bad decision to another bad decision. John Rockefeller was proof of what David said. David said, God's word will make you wiser than those oppose you, than who, who oppose you, if you love God's word. God's word will give you more insight than those who teach you, if you meditate on it. And God's word will give you more understanding than those who are older than you, if you will obey it. If you will love my word, if you will meditate upon it, and if you will obey it. You may be here this morning, and if you're really honest, you're saying, Pastor, I'm not satisfied with my life. I'm not satisfied with some of the choices that I've made. I'm not really satisfied where I find myself right now because I know I've made some wrong choices. I know I'm not making much headway. And if you're living far below the potential that you know you have, it may be because, like many people, you're just living according to what seems right in your own eyes. You're just doing what seems right to you at the moment, or you're doing what your culture says is right. The problem with that is that not only is our culture rejected the wisdom of God, if you ever noticed, every year our culture's opinion changes. It's always changing, and most times it doesn't quite work. And you know what? You might even be a professing believer here this morning, but if you're honest with yourself, you don't read the Word of God. Or if you do read the Word of God, you, you tend to more skim over it. You might do your reading for the day, but you're just kind of skimming. You're not stopping and think about what you're reading in order that you might have a chance for the Lord to actually shape your life. How many be honest enough with me this morning to say, Pastor, I could probably afford a little more of the Word in my life. Anybody agree with me? I, I could afford a little bit more of the Word. Whatever level you may be at, you may be faithful in reading the Word, but say, you know what? 
yeah, I could give an extra five or ten minutes and actually think about it. Or I could start maybe journaling. Or I could get a little memory, you know, scripture memory jar or something. I, I could go the next step further and really get the word of God in my life. Anybody? Just hold your hand up for a second. Yeah, do you realize, thank you, that if we all did that, if we all left here this morning determined, Lord, with the help of your Holy Spirit, I'm going to learn to love your word. I'm going to learn to meditate on your word. Oh, Lord, I'm going to just learn to obey your word, whatever stage you may be. I can promise you, if just this crowd here this morning would do that, there would come a renaissance in your life, in your home, your workplace, in the community, wherever it may be. There would come a renaissance. Why? Because the life of the Spirit of God through his word, through his people, would begin to be made manifest. Amen. The body of Christ wouldn't just be people who do good things and don't do the bad things. You know, we don't drink, smoke, swear, chew tobacco, or date girls that do. You know, whatever those rules may be. We're actually people who have the life of the Spirit in us. And when we speak, the way we live, the way the Holy Spirit guides us, there comes life through the course of the day, through the week, because the Word of God is in us. We love it. We're meditating. We're obeying it. It's changing us, and it becomes attractive. We become living epistles Living scripture read by all people. They say, how do I get me some of that? What is it you got? How do I get that? Let's just bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, I thank you this morning for your word, that you love us so much, that you have given us your word. You preserved your word down through the ages against every attack and assault to destroy it. You would not allow it to be destroyed, O God, because it is stronger than those who opposed it. And Lord, is the entrance of your word that brings light and life to the human race. So I thank you for your word. And I just pray for all of us here this morning, wherever we may be. I pray, Lord, that if it's the written scriptures and they're dusty, whether it's on our iPhone or iPad, Lord, and just isn't used, Lord, I pray. I pray for grace today, Lord, just to begin to move into that next level of what you have for us according to the power of your living word. Deliver us from religiousness. Deliver us from the darkness and the dark ages in different corners of our lives. And I pray, Lord, bring a new birth, a rebirth of life and promise. And I just pray, Lord, this morning for any of us who find ourselves in a place where we're just kind of dealing with things on our own. We're dealing with dryness on our own. We're trying new things, buying other things, going different places. I pray, oh God, for grace just to sit in your presence with your word and allow your word, O oh Lord, to give us wisdom, to give us insight, O oh God, to allow your word to just be like dynamite, to bring freedom where certain things have just been just flatlined for so long, Lord. You've come to bring life in all its fullness. And I pray this morning for a holy dissatisfaction. We will not be content, O oh God, until we begin to experience the joy and the truth of the entrance of your word into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we stand together?